Hi, this is Steve Bruce, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio station. Each week, I bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, CEOs and founders who are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself called PopDoc, which is revolutionising the world of blood testing. And I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Before we get into this week's show, as always, thank you very much for listening, whether you're listening live on UK Health Radio. We're now getting over 50,000 people a week listening live, which is amazing. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, Amazon, Google or Acast, thanks for downloading the podcast. And finally, if you're watching on YouTube, lovely to have you with us as well. Um, I'd also like to say at the beginning of the show, as I always do, thank you to Zero Zilch Zip for their sponsorship of the show. We'll be doing my non-alcoholic drink of the week review in a few minutes. We again, we still don't have a great name for that segment, so we're just going to roll with with that. Um, But Zero Zilch Zip, for those of you who don't know, regular listeners will know, but they have the best curated selection of non-alcoholic drinks on the Internet. Um, They do fantastic selection boxes of non-alcoholic beers, fizz, wine and cider. I love their drinks i drink them all the time and as many people know i've recently been on on a kind of no alcohol low alcohol journey myself and believe me if i'd have had zero zilch zip at the beginning it would have made my life a heck of a lot easier so anyway on to today's show on to today's show we have rachel grimaldi who's the ceo of something called card medic now card medic like pop doc really took off during the pandemic um, I'll let Rachel explain what it is, but but needless to say, Cardmedic have been on an absolute tear since then, winning a ton of awards, um, having gone to the US and, and expanded in the US and done all sorts of different exciting things. So it really is, a, it is a, it's fantastic to have Rachel on the show. Rachel's very busy. She's still a practicing clinician and um, it's taken some time to get her on the show, but we're very excited to have her. So Rachel, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for having me and for bearing with me, because like you said, our schedules have been super busy both ends. So I really appreciate it's, your patience. It's a bit. Look, we, we're more than happy to wait for great guests. It's, <laughs> without the guests, it would just be me talking for an hour, which I'm not sure. We, you know, after a while, I'm sure people will get get bored. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, look, it's great to have you on the show. Now, as I said before, in our kind of pre-show call, which we always do, um we every week I do a non-alcoholic drink of the week review so I don't know what is your what's your view generally about this non-alcoholic drink kind of trend it's become a bit of a trend right because water forever has been non-alcoholic but there's kind of more of a trend towards specific non-alcoholic drinks yeah definitely I mean to be to be completely honest I don't drink alcohol very often at all I very happily go for months and months without drinking it just doesn't bother me um and when I went to you I did two degrees at uni and my for my first degree I'd had a you know I'd been on a gap year it was a very impromptu unplanned gap year but I'd been on a gap year you know had fun partying by the time I got to uni I was ready to study um as nerdy as that might sound so I was always the one that was kind of out on the dance floor without really having had a drink um and usually the last one standing actually (laughs) which maybe may well be connected to that yeah so um so this week's drink of the week is the athletic brewing company pale ale so i'm a big fan of non-alcoholic beers this one comes from the us actually i think lance armstrong is either an investor 
in in the company or he's a big supporter of it he's all over he's all over instagram drinking this stuff so i had mm-hmm. this on the weekend nice and cold highly recommend it so as always we will put the images out on our social but yes the athletic athletic brewing company pale ale was was excellent um so yeah let's get into the show so um the show's in three parts as people will know which is origins how you came to be doing all the awesome stuff you're doing the middle bit which is all the awesome stuff that you're doing and then the final bit which is really you know how you stay on message and how you stay on mission and all that kind of stuff so um why don't we start with like how you know obviously you're a practicing clinician so maybe you could give us a bit of a bit of your background and how that kind of led to you you know doing card medic or you know what what was the inspiration and, and you know that what what first sort of moved you into the healthcare space Sure. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, my background, as you said, is clinical medicine. Um, I'm an anaesthetist currently working at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London doing my final year of training um, in paediatric anaesthetics. Now, Uh, I've been I qualified 13 years ago, but have had uh, children and have gone part time with my clinical training. And so um, it's kind of spread out um, the, the last few years of my training, actually. So um, hopefully I'll be finished with that in the next couple of years uh, and mm. finally be a consultant in medicine. Prior to that, I did a degree in physiology, um, which, uh, as I kind of mentioned, that so spent quite a long time at uni, lots of exams, um, but but always knew I did want to get into medicine. Um, and then since the sort of start of medical school, having done a physiology degree, um, found out about anaesthetics. It's very, very it's sort of clinical physiology in, in practice. So mm. so I was really drawn to that. And then one of the things about anaesthetists is um, as a kind of profession, they're quite they're very forward thinking. They're very innovative as a profession and they're really interested in human factors and communication. Um, and there's Martin Bromley, who's a, an old a, a pilot from I think it was B.A. originally, perhaps um, had a, an awful incident actually happened to him, um, his wife. Uh, he goes on to he's learned there was a kind of huge amount of learning from it from a human factors perspective. And it was shared with us as a video on it, um, really quite moving and quite inspirational on YouTube, I think, about the experience that his wife had um and sadly didn't survive and there was a lot of human factors involved in that and it was shown to us the first day of anesthetics uh of our anesthetics training so that's always um that kind of what, communication oh sorry what, what what yeah what happened what, what so what what do you mean by human factors and what yeah, you know what uh, yeah um, yeah if you could just kind of elaborate that would be helpful yeah definitely um so human factors is sort of uh, it's all about how we communicate and it's not just in healthcare; it's in lots of different healthcare. it's in lots of different settings um, but it's kind of about how do we communicate with each other about if we have a task that's really complicated are we getting fixated on that task are we kind of losing awareness situational awareness of what's going on around us mm-hmm. and when you're communicating for example in healthcare, there might be some sort of hierarchy we're trying to generally have the approach of of not having a sort of hierarchical approach in medicine so you feel comfortable to approach someone who might be more senior and more experienced than you um but but human factors are sort of all about how do we communicate how do we interact with each other is our bandwidth overloaded how do we cope with that what if there's a crisis going on where can we get other help okay. from in that situation so that's Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Because and you said, and is this particularly relevant to anaesthetics because things can go wrong very quickly, or or yeah. if something goes wrong, it will go wrong 
quite badly quite yeah, quickly. Yeah, potentially. I mean, anaesthetics overall are really, really safe. So we don't see these things happening at all often, but we do train for them and we do simulation and all sorts. Um, so um, but but when they when they do go wrong, uh, they can go horribly wrong, but it is extremely rare, which is why mm. we need to train for them. But mm-hmm. it's all the more reason, like you said, for human factors to be practiced because when something suddenly happens acutely or in an emergency, you're really having to focus, you know, have a sharp focus, potentially be very fixated on what you're doing, but mm. being able to communicate with the team around you efficiently and effectively. And it's down to things like making sure that someone's heard what you're saying by using their name, asking them to repeat okay. information back to you. It's all that sort of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So it's very much been ingrained communication at the heart of clinical practice has been ingrained in me well throughout medical school and and specifically throughout anaesthetics so I think sort of I've I've always had that interest I've always had an interest in patient safety as well Um, and so all of that kind of came together to underpin card medic and it was at the start as you mentioned the start of the pandemic when I was actually on maternity leave at the time when I was abroad visiting family in the US and the borders shut Okay. Um, so I couldn't get back to clinical practice. Um, and I was I really wanted to do something to help because being an anaesthetist, I've got had quite a lot of training in critical care. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's very relevant for COVID. But unfortunately, I couldn't get back to work, just physically couldn't get home. So I was reading um, the news obsessively. And I read about a patient who'd been to intensive care with COVID. And he was terrified because he couldn't understand healthcare staff through PPE and communication is obviously at the heart of healthcare. Uh, And when I saw him interviewed, he looked like he was um, probably in his 30s, no obvious communication problems normally. I thought, well, if he's struggling, what's everyone else doing? And what about people who do have communication problems normally? So I spoke to friends and colleagues who work across the NHS and frontline emergency services and said, are you, how are you writing, what are you saying? Are you writing notes on paper? Are you shouting at people? Are you just doing stuff to them without letting them know what you're doing because mm. there's no other way to to kind of progress clinical care and it was a whole combination of things and I just thought well that's not scalable for a pandemic to be writing notes um, on paper. So what 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 were they actually doing when you when you spoke to them and were, were they were they were they were was it notes shouting you know yeah. what was happening? It was a whole combination so it was partly just writing short notes on paper really you know short sharp sentences it's hard enough finding a pen and paper in the nhs let alone having the time to write a detailed note oh, yeah about. yeah and also like you're like you've got to think about it like if you're it's more than a two word or a three word question right so you need a piece of paper that's almost like big enough to write it clearly clearly enough and that's like an a4 sheet of paper so what are we saying people are going to carry around a4 pads and stuff that doesn't really yeah. that doesn't fit in the pockets at all i mean it's ridiculous and I think people were you know, people were trying their best in obviously completely unprecedented circumstances. They were using whiteboards and um, you know, people were adapting and coming up with um, kind of innovative ideas that that they could do on the shop floor. Um, but, yeah, it was a combination of, like you said, it's it's not sustainable to carry around a piece of paper and a pen um, to, to write notes. And, and it's more than two or three words when you're explaining to someone you're really sick. You need to go on a ventilator. You know, those sorts. Yeah, of that's like a big. Yeah. And they'll have lots of questions. Right. Yeah. And they'll have questions. And the person like, yeah, it's not it's not it's not 
it's not simple no not at all no so 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 that was what we were dealing with was this sort of acute crisis in communication and healthcare and we thought well if rather than people trying to have that approach or worse you know having to just do stuff without much explanation to people because there just isn't the time um to try and write things down what if we just made those written notes digital we just create an a to z library of scripts because Mm -hmm. in healthcare there is a definite standardization to what we say to patients when we're taking a history for example or explaining a procedure an investigation an intervention conversations Mm -hmm. are obviously really nuanced and detailed Um, but when you're having those initial conversations or explanations for example there is a certain standardization to it so we thought well if we just create this a to z library of scripts or pre-written notes if you like then the member of healthcare staff could just choose that script and show it to the patient and the patient could read so they'd have that kind of detailed information and you know when you go through your doctor training medical training clinical medicine training mm-hmm. do these scripts already exist in books and you learn them or is it kind of oral history it gets passed down sort of thing yeah. you, you hear someone saying it and then you retain and then that's how it is yeah that's a great question so um so yeah they're not written down as a sort of standard set of scripts at all so when you're at medical school there's a huge emphasis now placed on communication and we have sessions on it we get examined on it um but really it's a combination of you gain your knowledge about a disease process or an investigation for example through reading the books and understanding what what it entails but the actual practice of it clinically and how you learn to talk to patients about it is done like you said through practice through hearing the way your colleagues and your seniors might talk to patients and then over time developing your own scripts because Right. When you're talking to patients, you're always balancing up. In medicine, it's never black and white. It's never all or nothing, 100 percent, zero percent. So when you're kind of developing these, the way you, in which you explain things to patients, you're thinking through, well, I've got this scenario in front of me. Generally, for most people, what would happen in this scenario? Um, but I've got to bear in mind this person might have this condition or they might have this allergy or they might be anxious about xyz for example so we we've tried to with card medic write the scripts in such a way that it's written by people that have i mean i wrote the initial parts but since then it's grown rapidly and it's written by healthcare and allied healthcare professionals that are really experienced in talking to patients and have developed these scripts over years and years um, through a series of their clinical experience talking to patients and weighing up all of the, these you know potential issues that might arise and what would we what would work for the majority of patients what would we generally say in these scenarios and that's mm. how we've kind of created and, and worded the scripts um but we launched we, we, it was concept to launch in 72 hours it was really rapid so my, that's pretty rapid yeah, yeah it was um my husband's my co-founder and his background, uh, we've been together over 20 years, his background is uh, branding, technology um, and uh, e-commerce. So he could see really clearly how we could create a website which was simple, intuitive and scalable. Um, And so he set about in those first three days building the website and we launched our kind of initial version, our our sort of MVP, I suppose, um, and shared it initially just with some friends 
within 24 hours, a good friend of mine said, you've got to join Twitter. Um, I'm pretty hopeless at keeping up with Twitter, it has to be said. But um, yeah. I was also quite sceptical, so I didn't really know what a tweet was about. Um, but yeah. anyway, we, d- we did that. And within the first three weeks, we had 8,000 users in 50 countries. It had just spread wow. organically. Yeah, we hadn't asked anyone to sign up. We just had the website out there. out there. Yeah, just shared it. And then... Um, and at that point, was it very focused on COVID-related messaging? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Primarily just critical care. Um, And then I was in that time also adding content around obstetrics, for example, because I've done, um, you know, emergency caesareans or epidurals, pain relief, that sort of thing. So just kind of building out content that I knew about. Then also working with a critical care nurse who was writing critical care nursing content for Mm -hmm. intensive care. Um, And with kind of even within those first three weeks, really starting to build a network then Tim's worked with the Department for International Trade um, with his previous business, um, which was an e-commerce business. And our trade advisor was phenomenal. And she worked really hard to support us and, and still does. And within those first three weeks, we ended up getting some media coverage in the BBC and The Guardian, which then spread. It was initially newspaper and then it went to TV and radio and, and so on. But mm. the feedback that we had because of that coverage was absolutely phenomenal and it was from staff and patients and carers and members of the public from not just all across the UK but internationally and the ask if you like at that point was please can we have card medic to stay after the pandemic because Mm -hmm. there were actually we'd obviously kind of there was this acute crisis in communication but there are so many long-standing barriers to good communication in healthcare, which I think everyone can relate to, either themselves or a family member will have struggled at some point. And that might be language barrier, which is very common, but there's also deafness, blindness, cognitive problems like dementia, learning yeah. disabilities, stroke, autism, and literacy issues. And it can impact nearly 50% of the population. You mean and one of the, one of those one or more of those things impacts fifty yeah. percent of the population, right? Yeah. So taken together, it's yeah. nearly fifty percent of the population. And, and what, has what one, are, of one or more? Mm. And I know that obviously you're you know you've been in the NHS a long time, so mm-hmm. and and you work extensively with the NHS. And one of the big things the NHS is extremely keen on is is being able to sort of I would say quantify the problem in a mm-hmm. sort of financial sense, which is the kind of the problem from communication barriers or the financial, the the, the the unnecessary costs or the unnecessary spending or the inefficiency in the system or the risk to patients from inefficient communication or barriers to communication is sort of X. And so like, mm-hmm. obviously you started in 72 hours, so you didn't start by trying to, you know, because a lot of companies will start by saying, right, this is the problem. This is how big the problem is. This is the, you know, and so on, almost like a yes. business case. So like, mm-hmm. did you end up sort of circling back around to thinking, oh my goodness, this is much bigger than COVID. Actually, mm. you know, this is how big this problem is. Yeah, great question. Um, So yeah, that's exact. that was exactly our sort of mindset was we sort of unearthed this huge problem, which, um, which we'd known had been there for a long time. And part of the feedback that we had that we consistently get day in, day out is everyone knows that the gold standard would be to have an in-person or or if not in-person sort of telephone or video translator, interpreter or signer or speech language therapist or learning disability nurse. 
And we are definitely, definitely not replacing that. We are absolutely, um, you know, believe that that is the gold standard. But we don't have the resource or the funding to have those services available 24 seven. No, it's just not realistic. It's not realistic at all. And time and time again, um, what happens is either translators don't turn up, they're not arranged, things happen in urgent or emergency. I, I'll, be, I'll be totally honest with you. I didn't even know that was an option that you mm, that, that, yeah. that, that I didn't even I just assumed that that wouldn't even be an option that yeah. you just would have to just like like it or lump it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's the accessible information standard. There are the laws out there that we should be providing these services for patients 24 seven. But we just, just it's just impossible. So what happens and, and we're not there to replace those services. But what what we are there to try and replace is what happens in reality, which is ending up relying on friends and family to translate, for example. Yeah. Or, or turning to machine translation or pulling in members of staff from elsewhere around the clinical setting. Whether yeah, that's but all, all, the thing with that is, is all of that is completely a ad hoc and mm-hmm. b not um, not clinically validated is not necessarily the right word. But it's not like it's it's not like it's a documented clinical pathway that can be evaluated as to its efficiency or not or its efficacy or not. It's sort of like, oh, my goodness, we've got someone in here who doesn't speak English. Their mother tongue is X. Mm-hmm. How do we like solve for this in the moment? Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is. It's completely ad hoc. And the trouble with using friends and fact, well, you know, the, the kind of GMC. Well, you, don't, you also you don't know whether they translated it correctly. You've got yeah, no ability fact, to you've got no ability to verify. Not that they'll do anything malicious. Right. But they if they mm. themselves don't understand what you're saying, then what mm. may end up being said to that person, you don't necessarily it, it moves a, a further away from the sort of source material, so to speak. Radio. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things. Make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with Zero Zilch Zip, because nothing's better. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Yeah, 100%. And like you said, the vast, vast majority, but pretty much everyone will will be trying their best and wanting to help. But you have no idea if there is someone, one person who might be not trying necessarily to be malicious, but trying to shield someone from certain information or whatever it might be, or just not understood and, and and not know how to ask you know, can you please explain this differently or be embarrassed to say they haven't understood? Yeah. So there are guidelines, you know, there are laws and we're not meant to be using friends and family. But what else do we do? So so that was the sort of the feedback we had. And so we spent a lot of time and it's really difficult to estimate and to work out the size of this market and what is the impact. But we we've estimated in the UK alone, looking at 
you know, what is the shortfall? What is the risk to patient safety mm. of not having adequate communication? And we've estimated in the UK, it's about a billion pounds a year. It costs the healthcare system in not being able to support patients accurately in when they when they have a communication need. Um, okay. And on top of that, there is the litigation. Um, and when you look right. at serious incidents, critical incidents, Datex reports, which is the system we have to report these things through at hospitals. I've spoken to NHS resources. We don't actually capture in the UK how much of how much litigation or how much these serious incidents is directly due to poor communication. But we know when we do after action reviews and, and we and we analyse these things that actually um, the, the vast majority, if not pretty much everything has poor communication at the heart of it as an issue um but yeah looking in the u.s do capture that and it's 30 percent so medical 30 percent of medical litigation is the number one cause is poor communication could you could you just for my own just for us and the listeners could you Mm -hmm. like because poor communication covers a huge spectrum Mm -hmm. right that's a very broad term could you give us like a couple of examples like doesn't have to be specifically personal about mrs or mr or whoever but more just like a case study so i can we can kind of visualize exactly what that might lead to and happen and stuff you know yeah definitely i mean so with for example thinking about language translation you might be consent let's just use an anesthetic example you might be consenting a woman in labor for an epidural and she doesn't speak English as a first language and there's all sorts of um, interesting discussions to be had around how accurate is consent anyway when someone's in labor because they're in extreme amounts amounts of pain Yeah. yeah so that's challenging enough when that person speaks English but if they they don't speak that language and you're having to translate, let's say, the chances of getting an interpreter there can... In time, at that moment, it's almost, let's yeah. be honest, it's, it's got to be close to it's, zero, right, to yeah. line that up, the In interpreter and the epidural, yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, so it can be challenging, especially if it's really urgent. Um, so you do end up relying on whoever that birth partner is, um, yeah. whether it's a friend, family member, partner, whatever that might be. Um, and in my, my experience and many other people's anaesthetist experience that I've spoken to um, and midwives as well who look after these women quite often because of cultural barriers you'll be saying one sentence at a time because you're trying to keep it short and simple and whoever's translating might only say two or three words to that woman and you're thinking I know they've not conveyed what I need them to convey but time is of the essence and it's really it's a really difficult balance as a healthcare professional because you want to help that patient but you're making yourself vulnerable um another example is so uh, interestingly, we, oh, sorry, interestingly yeah. no, that's the exact so um I live in we live in Switzerland and that exact same thing's happened um, each time my wife's given birth we it's a french speaking hospital and so mm-hmm. we we have that exact same thing you know like we speak mm-hmm. some french but in the moment, you know, in labour with epidurals and having arguments with doctors and nurses in French and things like that, it's very, very difficult. You know, it's yeah. extremely your challenging. Stress. Your wife's stressed. Yeah, right. well, my, you know, my, um, strangely enough, in the final stages of labour, my wife's ability to speak a foreign language kind of falls off a cliff. You know, yeah. it's sort of like yeah. she's more yeah. focused on other things. Mm. And so, yeah, but so I can I, I can relate, and it's very um, it's very difficult. So, what mm. was the other case study? Well, no, there's just um, I mean, there's so many having 
spoken to so many healthcare staff over the last two years, but um, just another example, we've done a lot of work with the deaf community and they've been supporting us with our sign language videos, um, inclusive through to the, the company we've been working with. And some of the team that, that they've worked with have said, you know, I went into hospital or my dad went into hospital last year for an operation. We had no idea what they were trying to say. Now we understand. And one of the examples we also heard was a deaf, a deaf patient who was in hospital you know there were generally problems with beds in hospitals so people mm. get moved around and this person was moved to another ward um, and it was written down on a piece of paper we're moving you to this ward that ward happened to be a ward for patients with cancer okay. but the person who was deaf because bsl if they rely on british sign language their first language written english might be their second or third language so they looked at this note on paper didn't fully understand oh. it went to this ward for patients with cancer and spent a week thinking they had cancer when they didn't. Just to dial back a second, if you speak BSL as your primary language, British Sign Language, you may mm -hmm. not read English as your first language? You, is that what you mean? Um, you So it may be your second or third language. So if you're reading English, you may understand it. And lots of okay. BSL speakers do understand it. But the sentence structure is different. So it's like us uh, reading. It's like maybe you're reading French, for example. It's a second oh, language, you mean. but you can right. understand yeah, it. Yeah, of course, because the grammar and the syntax is all completely different. Yeah, it's, it's just a different on. structure. Right. Yeah, exactly. OK. So and, you know, that's so awful. That poor patient spent a week thinking they had cancer and there was no one there to correct them um, until, you know, a week down the line. And there are so many more examples than that. But yeah. yeah. And so and how do these things, you know, in the, the US where 30 percent of the litigation cases around malpractice are based around poor communication. Mm -hmm. are, the, are those examples you gave, do, are they is do, do they end up? Well, not not always, but are those things that could end up in malpractice suits in the US or is it, or is there a whole different bucket of when things go very much further wrong due to miscommunication? That is malpractice that is right. yeah, actually that, goes that, that's what we talk about okay okay yeah. that yeah okay because the us is a bit more potentially a bit more litigious than than we are um mm -hmm. and so how um you know it must have been very very strange having the company start so quickly mm -hmm. at, at what point did you feel like that you sort of could get ahead of it if that makes sense and come up with a more structured plan like moving away from kind of solving a very acute issue which is people in PPE can't talk to patients in COVID wards about their symptoms into more of a business because that was a very very timely op not opportunistic opportunistic in the best possible way to solve mm -hmm. a very specific problem but then it kind of has evolved into a, a business a proper business doing lots of things all over the place. Yeah, so I know it was it was it's definitely been an absolutely enorm enormous whirlwind. And I found myself in a scenario. I mean, Tim's been in business years and years and years. And for him, it's very much sort of second nature being in this environment. For, but for me, it was completely brand new. Um, and so I found myself in this um, scenario of um, of sort of thinking, well, how am I going to gain the skills to do this? How am I going to um, get the knowledge? How am I going to feel more confident in, um, you know, in, for example, speaking to investors or mm -hmm. um, pitching or writing a business plan or whatever it might be? And so I started off by going to um, an accelerator program called The Hill, which has run out of Oxford University Hospitals, which was absolutely brilliant and really took me from being um, a clinician with absolutely no business 
clue at all um, to someone who felt you know a bit more confident pitching to investors yeah. uh, and thinking about writing a business plan um, and a financial model etc cetera, etc cetera. and then after the hill they also ran an open api interoperability boot camp which yeah. was slightly over my head because it's quite technical um, and then after that went on to do mass challenge which is a us early stage accelerator and then i've just finished their health tech accelerator this year we're now piloting with Brigham and Women's Hospital at the moment um, and then um, I'm also on the NHS clinical entrepreneur program as well so I've sort of been through different uh, I'm, I'm, I'm now doing the Texas Medical Center accelerator program too so yeah. I think it's part it was partly right I need to get some knowledge and where am I going to find that knowledge and there was a huge amount of networking that was involved and it was partly I know my skill set and I know that there are tons of things I don't know and I need to surround myself with really experienced passionate driven people um, who do have that skill set so I'm definitely not at all precious about saying it needs to be me doing this well, but, you know if uh, think it's so the opposite I love having clinical entrepreneurs on the show. So for everyone listening, a clinical entrepreneur is kind of like what Rachel's doing, which is clinical background, whether that's private or NHS or, you know, some blend of the two, and then starts a business and goes up and business become an entrepreneur. And the reason why I really like it is because it gives you an incredible, um, I think it gives you an incredible skill set. So technical founders who have an extremely strong technical background, whether that's clinic, clinical, academic science, whatever it happens to be, if they're able to add those entrepreneurial skills, they become an extremely um, capable like person. Right. Because it's much, much, much harder and much, much, much longer to add those technical skills than it is to add the entrepreneurial kind of skills on top. I think that's my view. Oh, that, well, thank you so much. That's really kind to hear. I think um it, I think it's a funny one because I, you know, I definitely, especially in clinical practice as well, for a long time had imposter syndrome and starting in the world of business had it in a huge way because I just thought yeah. this is completely not my comfort zone. And, you know, I've been with Tim, will be 21 years in August and he's always done business. And so I've absorbed a bit of that from him and um, vice versa with medicine from me. But, you know, it really is nothing I've had training in before. And in the beginning, had massive imposter syndrome um and you know over time i think through doing the accelerators through having lots of practice pitching um and through the thing i love most is kind of going to hospitals we're rolling out the moment in with mid and south essex and going on site speaking to clinicians is just it's just fantastic and what when you um, say roll when you say rolling out like what because obviously as we sort of talked about your kind of product or service could could work across all kinds of different use cases whether it's yeah. you know acute and there's a PPE issue whether it's a language barrier whether it's a, mm. uh, a speech or a, or a hearing issue um, impediment um, whether it's something else literacy and so like how when you say rolling out with that particular what exactly what elements of what you're doing are they particularly interested in and are kind of like moving forward with yeah, so we so we're working with um, a number of trusts across the UK and also ICSs. So uh, Mid and South Essex is one of them. And with the ICS, that's they're quite new for the NHS. They're kind of trying to join integrated up. care system. Yes, right? exactly. Uh, community care, primary care, secondary care. So there's continuity for that patient on that journey. Um, and with the with the ICS, we're focusing initially on hospitals. So we've spoken to all sorts of different departments. Um, we've got radiology interested, obstetrics and maternity are, are hugely interested in what we're doing. Um, mm. 
because of lots of the reasons that we've spoken about, um, acute medicine, uh, A&E, intensive care, uh, the um, trauma wards, care of the elderly, stroke wards, those sorts of things. So the feedback that we're getting is, which is it's absolutely brilliant. They did a soft launch three weeks ago and then we've been going in person over the last week, week or two. Um, as soon as we see them, they said, you know, we've we've downloaded this this morning. We've used it twice already. Or okay. um, this is exactly what I need. Where you know, this is a lot of the feedback we get is this is such a simple idea, which it is. You know, it's not a yeah. complicated idea, but actually, the what goes in the technical side is very complicated. Um, but you know, it's such a simple idea. Why hasn't anyone done it before? And people are just thrilled that it's now available. Um, and part of how we've grown so quickly is people getting in contact saying I love this I really want to contribute content or help with translations right. or that sort of thing and that's how we've grown so quickly um, and that when we got two Innovate UK grants and some angel investment and we're just closing tranche one of a seed round at the moment um, oh great Congrats. so yeah I think oh, thank you it's, it's um yeah our lead investors are based in the US um, and are, are brilliant so uh, so yeah so that that sort of takes up a lot of time but I think the funding alongside the growing the team and having so much support from healthcare and allied healthcare professionals. We're working with an incredible group of speech and language therapists and learning disability nurses as well, has just helped us grow. Um, and, um, yeah, and, how, and how does the technology work? So you kind of intimated there that it's a simple idea, but it's actually technically quite complicated. So could you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's it's a website or an app. You download it from the app store. From, from the end user point of view, we want it to be very simple and intuitive. Sure. You download it from the app store, Apple or Google, or you just go online and create an account through the website. So you can ideally access it on any device. And it's primarily driven by healthcare staff initially, but patients can use it as well if that healthcare setting has a subscription for it. Um, and what we do is uh, that A to Z library of scripts, which when you sign up for the account, pop in the license code, you have access to all the content. You can bring the script up on the screen, show it to the patient and they can read it and then it can be changed to different languages. It can okay. also be presented as a sign language video with subtitles, um, easy read with pictures or read aloud so the patient can listen to it. And then we also have an integrated speech to text translation tool. Um, but the, the sort of where it gets quite technical is that if you imagine each of those cards needs to go through multiple translations, sign language, yeah. easy read. So it's, it's a very big, complex content management system behind it all. Um, yeah. And from the clinical point of view, it's not something you can just copy and paste from somewhere. Like you said at the beginning, this is based upon years and years and years of people's clinical experience as well. Yeah, exactly. You have to take it mm. from the source if it's effectively an oral history that's been handed down, so yeah. to speak then it has to be taken as such. You can't just kind of copy out of textbooks and stuff like that, right? Yeah. It, yeah, you can't. It's not it's not in textbooks in that way. Um, and 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 also um, it's you know, it is based upon decades of clinical experience that you can't just replicate. You can't just look on Wikipedia and say, how would I explain to a patient? You, you can find explanations for, for things like a procedure, you know, what's involved in this procedure. But there's nothing that has it as a script you know as a conversation this is what someone no. will say to you yeah exactly it's not humanized it's not made in no. a way that's not it's not sort of it's not been parsed through a kind of human speech platform to mm. make it sort of relatable to mm -hmm. to whoever's going to be doing it yeah exactly exactly and then our roadmap is to integrate into electronic health records as well so um that's a kind of big part well, of our and plan from a consent 
a consent based thing or what, what would be the integration with the health record? So um, we, so at the moment, we're not a consent platform and, and there right. are consent platform, e-consent platforms out there. And what we don't you know, we're not there to kind of reinvent the wheel at all. Um, but when when we started Carmedic, I thought, wouldn't it be great if you know we could also capture histories through this? If when patients are giving us answers to questions, we could type them in um, yeah. or create discharge yeah. some reason. Could create a record of it. Yeah, exactly, and save that into the notes. Um, but of course, you know, at the beginning with funding and everything, that's that's a huge piece of work to do, and we also didn't want to create something that people wouldn't use. So um, don't want to, we, no one needs a white elephant. No, exactly, and I think that was a, some. A, big kind of piece of takeaway from the accelerators that I went on was don't create a solution looking for a problem um you know you, yeah. your your solution really needs to solve a, a big problem and actually what we found is talking to um healthcare settings across the UK and the US and actually internationally because we've had interest from all over the world people are asking for this they've lots of people do have electronic health records systems available now not widely across the nhs but we are getting there um so we are you know we, we know that this is consistently being asked for by healthcare settings across the uk and internationally so that you can use carbonic without that but it will be an additional feature in the next year or so uk health radio the station that makes you feel good It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with Zero Zilch Zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Right. That's yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So just to go back quite a long way to the beginning of the conversation, I wrote down some notes around. You said at the beginning that anaesthetists are kind of well known for or, or are particularly forward thinking. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you feel like helped you on this journey? Well, first of all, why did you say that? I don't quite know. Is that is that a well-known thing that anaesthetists are very forward thinking for a particular reason? And then was is that is that a trait that you felt like probably helped you make this transition? Yeah, so that's really interesting. So I don't, I know, I sort of never thought of myself in that category of being, you know, innovative and forward thinking. I just went to work, tried to do a good job and kind of go home. But also, you know, there's loads of other stuff to do outside of that audits, research, teaching, simulation, all sorts. Mm. Um, But generally, anaesthetists, our job is very practical. So we have to be, um, you know, clinically then our knowledge has to be sound but we also use a lot of equipment we have to be good at troubleshooting machinery technology that sort of thing Um, and because we're so practical we do a lot of procedures with patients anaesthetists have invented all sorts of medical devices over the years Um, yeah tons of them Um, yeah airway devices and around vascular access all sorts of things so it kind of has that running through it as quite an innovative 
and and you know think on your feet type of practical profession. like a practical Pra kind of, practical we have a yeah. practical solution about intervening or having something to do with the patient we need a solution a technical solution yeah exactly and also you know if you're suddenly in a scenario where you might be practicing outside your usual you know we normally practice in theatres sometimes we end up in A&E or quite often when you're on call or on the wards for example and you might not have everything to hand that you need and you're having to think on your feet how could I make this work you know what what have I got yeah. around me that I could make work so that's just part and parcel of the profession that's partly what I love about it but it, the other kind of forward-thinking part is that anaesthetists for a long time have placed huge value on trainees and the training program and it really is an apprenticeship you're with a consultant from day one you are generally with a consultant all the time throughout your training with of course more and more independence as you progress through your training but having that very consultant-led teaching with a huge emphasis on training days um, and just the, the approach, the anaesthetic approach to, to training junior doctors has been a model that is um, not always copied by other clinical specialties. Um, okay. But I think just because we're a vocation where you are in theatre with you know one patient at a time, essentially taking over their all their physiology from yeah. them. you meet them and potentially within three minutes you're putting them to sleep depending on the urgency of the situation yeah. that's not yeah. something a trainee can just do on their own so because you're with a consultant from day one it is very consultant led and I think that's different than other specialties which that isn't always the case um, right. there is of course consultant input but it's not necessarily so heavily led by consultants so right. I just think that combination of the practicality of um, of the job itself and just the general kind of history of anaesthetics being really quite innovative. Um, I, I definitely sort of wasn't putting myself in that category going, oh, yeah, I'm really tech savvy and super innovative. But I just think that's sort of generally anaesthetists tend to have those traits. Um, but I think it's I think what's helped is doing being an anaesthetist is when I was, you know, did card medical at the beginning and I was sharing this with colleagues they were able to see the you know, how helpful this could be and were able to make really practical suggestions and feedback. And I think just being able to work with that group of colleagues and friends who got it, who got that this is a huge, huge pain domain, you know, huge yeah. problem, um, have loads of personal experience of this being a challenge in daily cl clinical practice and could see how Card Medic is the solution. So, yeah, I just think the combination of um, of those things sort of definitely gave me a big step in the right direction. And actually, at the very start of doing Card Medic, um, my anaesthetics department had a, a charity um, that they very generously helped us help fund us get off our feet. Um, oh, cool. the, the team in Brighton. Yeah, they gave us some funding just to start the website and um, get the sort of um, trademark going and things like that, which was very, very generous of them. Uh, because, again, you know, they're kind of digitally minded and, and tech savvy and could just see how this would be a great solution and um, one of my bosses at work who was my educational supervisor her husband was a gaming developer and he put a shout out on slack and we had someone oh, cool. forward to help us build an app in 10 days so oh, all that kind cool. of yeah people Proper like together. grassroots totally that's it was that from the very beginning for a really long time and we only commercialized a year ago and you know it's amazing we're already working with a whole bunch of hospitals across the UK and now in the US we have our first customer and we're also doing a bunch of pilots and things so it literally has been a massive team effort and yeah very much 
bootstrapping, like you said, kind of grassroots approach, just a massive kind of team effort from everyone. Cool. From the start. Um, yeah. So what's what's next in the next sort of 12 to 18 months for, for Card, for you and Card Medic? So I think one of the sort of acute things is finishing this round of investment. So we're nearly finished with tranche one and then we've got tranche two in the next three months. Um, and as I mentioned, our, our lead investors in the US um, and then our, our developers are also part of that team as well. So um, we've just finished moving or pretty much finished moving our all of our development work across to them. So okay. it's really picking up in earnest now the development of CardMedic, working towards the integration with electronic health records. Um, we've been invited by all scripts. Well, now they've changed their name and they've been um, yeah. acquired, um, but uh, working, we've been invited to join their developer program and um, amongst kind of other EHRs that we've been talking to. Um, so part of it will be the development side. Uh, we're growing the team. We're currently recruiting for an executive assistant um, oh. and we've just recruited someone for HR and head of projects. We've got someone joining in September who will be head of implementation and rollout. We're going to be looking for someone clinical to join the team um, okay. as well. Um, so, yeah, a bit more recruitment going on there um, and someone to help with content, too. So it will also be kind of growing the team. We care a lot about social impact. So we love when kind of like minded people get in contact and and reach out. And part of what we've done with CardMedic is um, what we really want to do is, is have a foundation. And we've got the, the sort of skeleton of that now. Uh, and when we can afford to, we'll support that and work with we've already worked with refugees in Kenya with Step Up One, who are an amazing foundation to do some of our translation work. But we really want to support training for community health workers for refugee camps to be able to fund that um, support humanitarian crisis. That makes a huge that makes a huge amount of sense. That makes yeah. a huge amount of sense, which is you've got refugees in one country where they don't speak necessarily speak the language and you've got aid workers who speak another language mm -hmm. trying to find some common ground to go through procedures. I think that makes a huge amount of sense. Yeah, definitely. And often for refugee camps as well, they might only have one community health worker um, yeah. per thousand refugees or, or more. So yeah. and and we want to be able to fund that to improve mm. service that they receive. Um, we want to support humanitarian crises and we've started to do that on a very small scale. But we really want to be able to to kind of expand upon that um, to support female entrepreneurs and healthcare entrepreneurs in developing countries by providing them with with grants for projects they might be doing. Um, but, you know, there's lots and lots of ideas that we have. So um, so not necessarily in the next 12 to 18 months, but a bit more long term is being able to support the foundation as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be a combination of closing the investments the tech development side and growing the team and then expanding across the NHS and, and in the US as well are the big things on the roadmap. So do you feel like that actually gave you an amazing baseline that might be potentially higher in terms of other people's baselines in terms of dealing with stress and stress and pressure and difficult situations? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting insight. So, yeah, I think it's it's funny. Um, Definitely. I think it gives you a sense of when you literally are dealing with life or death at work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's you like think, minutes. You have minutes yeah. to make the right decision. Exactly. Sometimes even less than that. And you think, you know, that the training over the years that, you know, there's always an element of stress in those scenarios. But you're, you generally always have a team with you, yeah. other people to rely on. But but over the years, that gets 
it gets less stressful because mm-hmm. you've you've often seen these things many times before. Yeah. Um, and so, you, you know, in the beginning, what you find really, really stressful and you get very anxious about when you've been doing it a few years or well, I did graduate medicine. So I actually was on the shop floor from day two of medical school. So kind of <laughs> in the NHS for 17 years, um, as it were. But but, you know, once you've been doing these things quite a long time, it get, it gets less stressful. But when you go into the business world, you know, there's there's other things that I find stressful. But I think what is really useful is thinking, well, look, I've seen the worst happen to people. Yeah. You know, I've dealt with Literally. life or death. This business is not life or death. You know, this yeah. is it's really important that it works. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of people that are invested in it emotionally, financially, um, mentally. Yeah. But it's not life or death. So it does help you with perspective uh, yeah. for sure. I think, yeah, that that and definitely also, helps. And it must. I mean, I, I find I don't know about you, but the I mean, however big your crisis is at that particular time and, you know, on a spectrum between literal life and death within seconds or minutes. And then the other end of things, I can't find my car keys, you know, like there's sort of a spectrum in between um, the ability, I think, to be able to try and. Try, try and think, get everyone to think clearly, whoever's involved, but also try and shepherd people towards a decision. Right. Because I think that sometimes in stressful situations, it actually prevents people sometimes from making a decision you know it's there's sort of like a fear of the decision even though you know the decision has to happen but Mm -hmm. actually trying to kind of force people into channels where they actually have to take a decision Mm. and I think well it's funny my mum always says you know the hardest part about any decision is making it um and and I think and like you said it depends what that decision is but but sometimes it's almost easier to make a decision if you only have minutes to make it if you're thinking yeah. you know there's there's two ways this could go there's definitely a decisiveness that comes there's there's so many transferable skills i think from medicine into yeah healthcare into business I'm, you know so like if yeah. i think back from when i started in my career doing whatever i was doing you know i was certainly less keen on taking decisions because i hadn't taken decisions before and so mm-hmm. i was more concerned about the consequences whereas now obviously you know i've been doing what i'm doing yeah totally definitely i think it's just like like you said your shoulders get broader and you because you it's often pattern recognition as well so you can just see you know okay that or just the hindsight I should have made it maybe made a different decision or um but generally in in medicine because you're you're often there with a team as well you can bounce ideas off each other um but I guess you know sometimes in business you you don't know until you try um and you think oh in retrospect maybe I should have done that a bit differently or I wish I'd have done that I think I think your point about business is 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 a good one though right because it's rarely in a business is is one single decision life or death rarely right so you you have more ability to iterate okay Mm -hmm. we'll try this okay if that doesn't work we can try this if you do you know you 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 have more of that flexibility right it's not like you're not at the cliff edge the entire time Mm-hmm. yeah yeah totally um although sometimes it can feel like that, you know? well, that but that's the thing I, yeah. think it's, I think the anxiety around running and starting your own business is sort of it makes you feel that way and I think weirdly there's this like cultural pressure like if you watch stuff on Netflix and it always because they have to create these moments of tension right mm. it always makes it seem like it's a binary choice when in fact it's not a lot of the time it's kind of a plurality right and there's mm. like a multiverse thing where most of the time there's lots of different outcomes that are all completely possible at any given time you know from like on the massive upside to the massive downside yeah definitely and I think you you don't know you know you don't know until you've made that decision something's happened and then you think 
huh, I may have may approach that differently next time, but that's okay because I've learned something from it. And you know, it's all right. It's not a total disaster. But I think part of the challenge with businesses, you don't you don't know when things are going to necessarily end, or there's no sort of like right there two years to be at this point. Yeah, no. there is no end. So yeah. um, so I think that makes it harder. Whereas in medicine, you know, things might have a final end, whether that's the end of your shift or yeah. the patients being delivered to intensive care or you yeah. have a chance to hand over um, yeah. or involve other people. And sometimes in business, you might be making those decisions on your own well, or in a small team and there's no one to hand over to. No, so, exactly. um, so, yeah, I think it has it brings a lot of its own stress and stresses. You know, business is not an easy life by any stretch of the imagination at all. Um, and, you know, being a founder and being in the startup world is particularly challenging. Um, so I think, yeah, lots of transferable skills. Um, but I think. I guess one that kind of I, I lean into sometimes is this isn't life or death. You know, it's not like these decisions are really important and they're big and they deserve a huge amount of attention. But, you know, worst case that no one's going to die as a result of this. Yeah. And a lot of the time it's just that a decision has to be made about something. Yeah. You just have to you just have to yeah. decide. Yeah. Do you go with blue or green on the website? Do you go with these titles? Do you do this? There's just a thousand different decisions. And, you mm-hmm. know, when we did our show with Matt Hancock, one of the things that he said that I think made a lot of sense is like just the machine needs a decision. You just, yeah. you, you, you know, like can such and such have three days of holiday? You know, mm-hmm. whatever it happens to be, you just need to keep that machine going while also maintaining the ability to identify major problems and major decisions that need a lot more thought and care and attention. Yeah, definitely. You've got to divide your time somehow. Um, and I think part of what you were saying about sort of staying on that mission and is maintaining an enthusiasm for what you're doing as well. Surrounding yourself yeah. with like minded people and 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 maintaining that enthusiasm and and losing heart for what you're doing. You, just, so you, I, you, yeah. you lose momentum. You just you, yeah. you, all of that and you just lose momentum. Also, particularly in small scale businesses, momentum is critical. Like yeah. keeping it because it's so hard, you know, everyone's working so hard and it's so stressful and there is always more work to do than you can get through because it's kind of, you know, that's the nature of like early stage businesses. You mm. need, though, people that mission clarity, but also that momentum and that drive to just mm. keep on kind of coming in and keep on pushing. And I think it's like the worst thing is you can get into this, the kind of like the stagnant sort of, you know, um, yeah, the stagnation of decision and just not 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 just not making a decision. And the machine just grinds to a halt. Mm. Yeah, it's just it's that forward progress, isn't it? It's like, OK, yeah. we've done that. Right. Let's move on. We'll monitor it, see what happens as a result. Yeah. But now we need to carry on with X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's just keeping that momentum going and the, the enthusiasm. Um, yeah. And I think for me, one of the, the biggest things, actually, that has really helped keep that going in the last um, couple of weeks has been going and meeting frontline staff who are using the product yeah that's game changer that's yeah. a total game changer yeah because like, it's, like, when, it's yeah. actually people's i mean i know people have been using it all over but to be next to them whilst they're yeah. using it to hear their feedback is just yeah that's a, total like game. that's a total yeah. game changer i completely agree with you mm, yeah definitely and i think that's given everyone you know massive sort of boost and just to know that um you know we're getting the actual we've had lots of kind of feedback and, and people sending in um, stories and things like that, but to actually speak to the, the people that are using it and to hear that in real time, oh, I've just used it this morning or I've just downloaded this and I've got yeah. you know patients waiting right now who I can use this for, that kind of thing. Just, it makes it makes it all very worthwhile. And, you know, rather than just sort of all this remote working, sitting at home and you think, 
I know people are using it, but I've not really met many of them. Yeah, yet. exactly. And yeah. Like, it feels yeah. very ethereal, but yeah, Agreed. it's lovely to, to meet them in real well, life. Rachel, we've come to the end of the show. So <laughs> it was a really great show. It was fantastic having you on. Obviously, you know, card medics going from strength to strength. So congratulations with that. And, um, you know, we'd love to have you back on at some point, you know, in the future to hear about how you've conquered the US and wherever <laughs> else. So it was really great to have you on. So thank you very much.